I was doing a word search the other day. The theme was types of cheese. There was Swiss and cheddar and Gouda. Then I spotted it. Pinconning. Yes, the town that also gave its name to the cannabis strain that is at the center of our story here. Which reminds me, if you're jumping in for the first time, make sure to go back and listen to part one of our podcast series first. But back to the cheese. Before pinconning was known for marijuana, it was known for its cheese. It's how most people realized they even passed through the Bay County town. They spotted a bunch of signs featuring cheese or a huge mouse holding a triangle of cheese. According to the official website of Pinconning, that all started in the early 1900s with a family dairy farm. Not surprisingly, the website does not mention Pinconning Paralyzer or the details of how the cannabis strain originated. Luckily, Gus looked into that. Here's what he found. What's the what's the history of the weed strain? Like, how did it come to be? What was it? I mean, the weed strain basically got come back from the service. He had some Afghan seeds. I have a real good friend who was into a little bit of the breeding thing back in the day. It is nothing like it is now, right? And he just took a purple Hawaiian plant and he grew the Afghan seeds that the guy brought brought back from overseas. He bought the weed over there, you know, brought it back when he come back from the service. And bam, there's your paralyzer. The man you heard speaking a moment ago is David Myers, one of the purported creators of pinconning paralyzer, although the exact origins I've found are a matter of debate. But if he's to be believed, and I don't know why he'd lie, Pinconning Paralyzer is a hybrid. The key ingredient in what makes it unique to Michigan is one of its parents, the strain a U.S. serviceman smuggled home after fighting in the Vietnam War. The foreign seeds were planted, bred with a domestic strain, and Pinconning Paralyzer was born. As I poked around trying to learn more about Pinconning Paralyzer and its originators, I was told by several people that David Myers knew I was working on the story, and he didn't want to talk. I'd all but given up on speaking with him, until one day I decided to visit all of the addresses for him that were listed in court records. I soon found myself turning down a dirt road flanked by well-spaced, tucked-away homes on one side and farm fields on the other. Where the road ended at some woods, I turned right onto a gravel driveway. A man with a graying beard, black shorts, sneakers, and a slight pot belly walked my way. Hey, how's it going? Uh, My name's Gus Burns. I'm a reporter with MLive. And uh, I was doing a story about uh, the history of Pinconning Paralyzer. Okay. And, uh, was, and I'm going to some of the old addresses where the police files said there were raids in the past. Okay. Um, so I came here because this was uh, one of the ones that was listed back in like uh, 2000, you know, was this the 98, 99? <clears throat> they went to... Uh, Larry Myers' house first, and then the next day came to two six six Nielsen. Yeah. Are you? Uh, by, do you know David Myers? Yeah. Okay. Um, are you David Myers? Yeah. <laughs> well, sorry to sorry to come in on you like this, but uh, okay. Uh, you may have heard that I was was Around. working was working on this. Yeah. Some big old no crazy story. You'll hear more from David Myers throughout this podcast. He was hospitable enough to invite me in for an hour and a half long interview with him and his wife Judy. We smoked cigarettes at the kitchen table with pictures of David and Judy's children and grandchildren hanging on the wall above a basket of unfolded laundry. Their black lab, named Charlie, snoozed nearby. 
David Myers doesn't want publicity for his role in the creation or popularization of Pink County Paralyzer, but said if there's going to be a story about him, regardless, he'd like his side included. David Myers prefers to leave the troubles his then-young family endured related to him growing marijuana in the past, but being credited as a founder of Pink County Paralyzer is infamy that's going to be difficult to ever truly shake. In the last episode, Terry Laskowski talked about alleged paralyzer seeds he received from an old friend who rescued them from a Union Hall party in the 1970s. He talked about, quote, some brothers dropping off weed and the straggler seeds left behind. He was slightly evasive when asked who these brothers were, but there is a trio of brothers who have become synonymous with Pinconning Paralyzer, the Myers brothers. I spent more than four months looking into Pinconning Paralyzer and its origins. Archive news stories, police records, court files, interviews, and online rumors kept pointing to the same trio of brothers as the founders. There are five Myers brothers, and a sister who died at a young age in 1972, but only three of them were associated with Pinconning Paralyzer. At least, only three were ever busted in connection to it. Of course, there were many others outside the family who grew and sold it. The brothers include Larry Myers, who was the eldest, He died in 2012 after spending nearly half his life in a wheelchair due to multiple sclerosis, a nerve disease that crippled him and caused severe pain. Larry was diagnosed with MS when he was 22 and advocated hard for medical marijuana legalization, which he was able to see come to fruition in Michigan before his death. Then there's the middle brother, 65-year-old Roger Myers, who flew mostly below the radar until he and his wife, Malin Myers, were nabbed by police during a pinconning paralyzer sting in 1999. Roger Myers has suffered from throat cancer for the last 20 years. He struggles to speak and his voice is raspy and strained. Even though he can't eat or smoke anymore, and hasn't been able to for nearly 8 years, he said he still likes to occasionally take a whiff of some marijuana buds. When I last called him, he said his health was failing, and he wasn't able to talk. So I'm grateful for the couple hours I was able to spend with him and his wife at their home on the Saginaw Bay in Pinconning. And finally, there's the youngest, David Myers, one of the alleged creators of Pinconning Paralyzer, He's also the only one of the brothers who served any serious prison time. Now he's a builder and a soy farmer who lives on 40 acres outside of Pinconning. When I visited, he had an American flag emblazoned with a pot leaf hanging from his garage workshop. David downplays the role of his brothers. Like you're saying, you know, somehow, you know, the Myers boys were in the whole thing, you know, and basically I was really the only one that was more heavily into it, I would say, than all the other ones. Larry did it for himself, so he had some weed to smoke, and he didn't have to spend his little bit of money that they would give him for living. And my brother Phil was, you know, a carpenter for his whole life. He had absolutely nothing to do with it. I mean, he smoked weed, but, I mean... Mm -hmm. We had nothing to do with the growing. There was, like I said, it was pretty much. Yeah, and Larry was, you know, in a fucking wheelchair, so how much do you think he did? The Myers family grew up in Pinconning, trapping muskrats along the Saginaw Bay. My grandfather was totally old school, you know, and when I was four or five years old, I used to go with him, and that's kind of a, you know, how you ask me about... You know, the growing and stuff, it's kind of a thing. You go into something in its zone, its own zone, right? And you figure this is where he comes, this is where he eats, and, you know, you're going to sit here, and he's going to go here, and, you know, it's kind of a thing, and then you catch him, and it's kind of like a fulfillment thing. All the Myers boys at one point worked for the railroad, and despite creating the state's most prolific weed strain, 
they appear to have lived humble, hardworking lives. I've spent some time in Pinconning. It's definitely got a self-sufficient feel, but everyone I came across, even when I was poking around in business that wasn't my own, treated me kindly and seemed open and honest. And if they weren't open to talking, at least they didn't pull out a shotgun and yell at me to get off their property. To learn more about Pinconning's history, and with the hope of learning more about Pinconning Paralyzer, I stopped into the local newspaper, the Pinconning Journal, on a rainy day in June. The owner, editor, and publisher, Craig Barnt, was sitting at a cubicle just inside the front door. Right now, Pinconning's known for cheese. Pinconning, I don't remember the Ojibwe pronunciation, but it actually means potato place. The ground, the, the soil is very fertile. Um, and the Indians used to farm potatoes and stuff here. In the early 1900s, uh, a man named Dan Horn moved to Pinconning and started a, a cheese factory. There were, there were lots of dairy herds in the, uh, in the area, and he started making Pinconning cheese, a, a certain blend of Colby cheese. And Pinconning became known for that. There were, you know, the Wilson's Cheese Shop, the Pinconning Cheese Store, been here for, for many, many years. I think uh, they uh, sub- just celebrated the 100th year of Pinconning cheese a couple of years ago. So uh, Kraft had a cheese factory here for many years, and that was the major local employer. And that's how Pinconning became the cheese capital of Michigan. That's starting to shift with the arrival of the legal marijuana industry. Pinconning Township was the first uh, governmental subdivision, I don't know what the word correct word would be, uh, was the first in the state to have all the ordinances and everything in place. And they, because they were an early adopter, they got a lot of publicity in the, in the marijuana industry, and they've continued to support and aggressive, I would say, aggressively go after that, that kind of investment. And it shows. I mean, if you drove in Pinconning Road, you can start picking out the facilities that are there um, and it's, it's going to be a big, big business in the local area. Unfortunately for the historical record, Barnt said the previous owners of the newspaper shied away from reporting on drug use, busts, or illegal activity surrounding Pinconning Paralyzer. I bought the paper in December 2016 when my uncle passed away. He had been the uh, editor and publisher for j- four months short of 40 years. Um, he bought the paper in... Uh, 1977, uh, and he and my aunt operated the paper until he was uh, 83 years old, and uh, they were very conservative, uh, and they saw, they bought the paper in 77 during a a big uh, economic downturn, and saw saw a lot of uh, a lot of things go by the wayside, and uh, they always took the attitude that people could go just about anywhere to get bad news, and that uh, there was no need to emphasize the bad news, the illegal things that happened. People already knew them. In the 80s, you probably still had, you were still looking at, at Hundreds of kids graduating every year from the high school, and you had uh, you had a larger population in the uh, you know 15 to 30 age group, where uh, 
you know, a lot of them were born and raised on farms and had the ability and the knowledge on how to make things grow. And they, uh, they adapted that knowledge to uh, some things that were uh, maybe not their traditional crops, let's say. So, uh, you know, it's not a surprise that, that something, uh, you know, a, a specific strain of marijuana came out, you know, was developed in this area because there were a lot of farm kids and that's the kind of things that they did. Actually, if you go to the Pinconning Cheese Store, they sell Pinconning Paralyzer hot sauce. They're playing on the name. Um, and that's, that's more what it is than anything else. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody that, that really is pushing that as a, as a strain, specific strain of marijuana or anything like that. As I said, I was... I was not even in Michigan. I was in the Air Force at that time when that would have been popular. And so, you know, it was nothing that was was on my radar at all. Right. But that's, you know, it, it, it say it wouldn't be a wouldn't be something that was nationally known to, to everybody. But, you know, whether it was well known in Detroit, I could honestly couldn't say. Between 1987 and 2007, as the popularity of Pin County Paralyzer peaked and then started heading back down, the Myers brothers needed legal help frequently. They were the targets of four raids or stings over that time frame. While interviewing relatives and people around town about the Myers brothers, I learned that their go-to attorney was Ed Saprinsky of Bay City, who himself was a casualty of the war on drugs. He served eight months in prison for marijuana possession. In 1972, I became the only person in United States history who was ever federally indicted, convicted, and sent to a federal penitentiary for 1.6 grams of marijuana, less than two joints. As I walk up the concrete steps to Saprinsky's office inside an 1876-built, all-Victorian-style home in downtown Bay City, I enter a tiled foyer where I imagine Bay City's elite once convened for swanky dinner parties. At the entrance is a personalized floor mat. It reads, quote, Wipe your feet on bayonet. Bayonet is an acronym that stands for Bay Area Narcotics Enforcement Team. It's one of more than two dozen multi-jurisdictional drug task forces run by the Michigan State Police with the help of local law enforcement, and the same drug unit that waged war with Pinconning Paralyzer in the 1980s and 90s. Saprinsky is not a fan. He himself was a target of a bayonet raid in May of 2001. Bayonet supposedly convinced Saprinsky's disgruntled former secretary to snitch on him. She told police she saw a bag of weed in the attorney's office, and that was the basis for a search warrant that turned up a small bag of pot and some psychedelic mushrooms found in Saprinsky's office, as well as two pounds of marijuana in a separate locked office in the same building. After being charged with a felony and a misdemeanor possession, a judge threw out the case, claiming police needed a separate warrant for the locked office, and that the former secretary needed a warrant for Saprinsky's office, since she was essentially working as an agent for Bayonet. Police haven't raided the office Saprinsky works in today. There's a young man answering phones in a room converted to office space on the first floor, but it's quiet. A Bob Marley CD lies on the coffee table in the waiting area. Saprinsky eagerly shows me a police battering ram and a crowbar tool that police use to break down doors. Bayonet 2791 is inscribed on the handle. Saprinsky shows me the other end of the battering ram. It's got the letters GTF. But just to show you how ignorant these guys are. <laughs> they, and and just to capture that pig mentality I was telling you about, you know, the, the cowboy mentality, they had this put on their gang task force, all right, so that 
they'd leave the imprint on the door. Bang, you know, cowboys. But you know what? The cowboys are so stupid that w- when you bang that on the door, it's going to be the wrong way. <laughs> We then walk to the back porch over another personalized floor mat. This one says, quote, come back with a warrant. There are a couple all-day IPA beer cans on one of the outdoor tables. Saprinsky tells me he's working on a book about his legal career, and after some more small talk, we start discussing the Myers brothers. Saprinsky remembers Larry Myers the best, but refers to them all as, quote, good guys. It's clear he cared for Larry beyond more than just an attorney-client relationship. He had empathy for Larry Myers, who was a legalization activist just like Saprinsky, and who was also forced to use a wheelchair due to his multiple sclerosis by the time he was in his mid-30s. Larry was a revolving door. Okay, the others were. But Larry became a revolving door because he's, he's, he can't even run. He's confined to his house in a wheelchair and just waiting for them to come through the door again. And they did, again and again and again. That's what really disgusted him. His wife left him, and, and, um, and he was just basically secluded kind of alone in a sense he had his family in that so but I, I you know this man went from a very happy productive journeyman carpenter making good money and he lost that slowly through the through the affliction and then uh, and then he couldn't even use his medicine in peace without being victimized more you know my opinion I watched it I'd watch him cry <laughs> So. so you think his life might have been more pleasant? Oh, hell yes. Had he not, had, the, had it been today's day and age? And he oh, yes. He'd be able to use it legally, medically, you know, if he wanted to, or recreationally at this point. Larry Myers had been diagnosed with MS by the time of his first bust in 1987. Shortly after and through the remainder of his life, Larry Myers used a wheelchair. He tried numerous pills and sometimes unorthodox treatment to deal with the pain and muscle spasms that plagued him. Here's Larry's brother, David Myers. They they were saying that, you know, your stomach muscles or whatever, that's what makes your legs jerk, so they want you to put the bee stings on the muscles and oh, you know, funny. I mean it was just I, I mean, mean I'm look not at you saying back it then was about it. It was, you know, test. Well the thing that worked was the marijuana, not the Right. Yeah. The marijuana was just so easy, he just had a little pipe and he had a little uh token off of a, like you put a, a bingo chip on and he would just take a hit off that and put that right on there right away and it goes out and he would just do you know one hit here there it wasn't like you know we sat there and smoked Smoke joints out. all day I mean he smoked, he smoked a lot of times in a day but he would just do the one hit thing and put it out and he didn't use as much and it didn't cost him as much and you know I helped him what I could and that's kind of what I was doing when that deal went down there where he got busted. Police first arrested Larry Myers for marijuana in January of 1987. He was 34 at the time. The headline of the January 26, 1987 Bay City Times story about the bust read, Pot grower says raid on truck was publicity stunt by police. Larry Myers would later say that police notified various media outlets so that they would be present when the search warrant was served. Myers wasn't home when police entered his house about 11 p.m. on a Friday. He only learned police had been to his home in Fraser Township, just outside of Finconning, when he read about it in the Bay City Times newspaper the following day. He asked his brothers to check things out. 
When they arrived to the tri-level house, nestled in a rural setting on eight acres, they found a search warrant tacked to their front door. According to that Bay City Times story, it said, quote, Deputies who raided the house discovered marijuana in small bags throughout the house and in a small seedling room where the plants are started in enriched soil and small pots. They later are transferred to a semi-trailer which is connected to the house's electrical system. Two large heat lamps hover above the marijuana plants. There is also a heater in the corner of the trailer where cut marijuana is dried. Myers disputed investigators' statements that marijuana plants in the trailer could produce 70 pounds of weed every 12 weeks, or about $280,000 worth of grass annually, end quote. Larry Myers told the reporter he could more accurately grow about 20 pounds a year, worth only about $40,000. He said, quote, I have MS and I found that marijuana calms me down. I did not grow this to sell it. I have a few friends I might give some to, though. The sheriff knew I was growing here way back in August, and he just decides to pick this time, when it was about to be harvested, to raid my house. If he'd waited another week, it wouldn't have been there, end quote. Investigators cited a threefold increase in electricity use at Larry's home as part of their basis for a search warrant. Today, utility companies don't usually share that sort of information with police unless it's in response to a court-ordered subpoena. Larry Myers was using magazines and books to learn about hydroponics and indoor growing. Police seized those as well. They took the weed, the growing equipment, everything. They took it all. They took the whole semi-trailer and then they come up with the thing that, whoa, they didn't find what they wanted. Larry's trying to grow some weed so he can freaking live. According to court records, this is the one and only time Larry Meyer served any jail time. It appears about 30 days, although he was initially sentenced to six months. A felony count of possession with intent to distribute, which carried a punishment of up to four years in prison, was dismissed. Larry pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of misdemeanor possession. While not much would come from this bust, it would mark the beginning of law enforcement's efforts to snuff out Pin County Paralyzer and the Myers brothers. This was also the first, but not the last time, semi-trailers would come up in connection with the Myers brothers. Police long believed Pinconning Paralyzer was being grown in underground trailers, although they never found any. It would become a cat-and-mouse game, not unlike the enforcement of alcohol during Prohibition. Growers would take some seeds and put them in farmers' cornfields, unbeknownst to the farmer. They'd keep an eye on the marijuana as it grew and make sure to sneak in and harvest it before the farmer chopped it down along with his own crop. Roger Myers, the middle brother who long suffered from throat cancer, tells me they'd plant seeds anywhere they could, farm fields, in the edge of woods, or next to ponds. The trick, he said, was to remember where, and also to make sure it was hidden well enough that someone else wouldn't find it. Thieves were as much a nuisance to illicit outdoor marijuana grows as the police in those days. One trick Roger Myers told me about, they'd plant marijuana in highway medians, and then when it was time to harvest, jack up their cars along the highway at night, as if they'd blown a tire, and pick their buds. It was around this time in marijuana prohibition history, during the Reagan administration and the reinvigorated war on drugs, when spending on enforcement significantly increased. Say yes to your life. And when it comes to drugs and alcohol, just say no. Police often used planes, helicopters, and thermal cameras to find outdoor grows. One example took place on about August 26 of 1987, nearly six months after Larry Meyer's first bust. A Bay City Times article from that date, with the headline, Marijuana Field Cleared by Police, said federal DEA officers, with assistance from Bay County Sheriff's Office deputies, found a 120-plant grow in a cornfield. It took police nearly three hours to clear it. One of the Bay County Sheriff's deputies involved was Detective Louis Guizdala, who was also involved in the bust at Larry's house the same year. He told the Bay City Times, We talked to the other farmers out there, but nobody had seen anybody coming around the plants. We saw motorcycle tracks out there, but I don't think anybody will ever be charged. Ironically, less than two years later, Guzdala himself was charged and later sentenced to 10 months in prison after he pleaded guilty to a charge of conspiracy to distribute marijuana. 
Guizdal admitted to accepting televisions and video equipment in exchange for facilitating a marijuana deal, and he appeared on the front page of the Bay City Times as part of an investigation into police corruption entitled, quote, Tarnished Badges. In the next episode in this Michigan Crime Stories special, we'll learn how Pinconning Paralyzer got its name and follow the escalating police efforts to bust the Myers brothers as their growing operation evolved and became more sophisticated. Cloning thing came in and... Then once that came in, you know, then everybody was doing it. Every, I mean, you could go around here to any cornfield that was around here, you'd get some dope. Because they were just, people were just, it was crazy. And then some stupid person or whatever made a story to the high times, just kind of like what I'm saying what this story is. And then it got printed and then heat. And that's where we'll leave you for today. But make sure to subscribe to Michigan Crime Stories wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on the rest of the Pinconning Paralyzer story. If you value quality journalists like Gus and the work they do, please consider becoming an MLive subscriber. And if you are looking for more podcasts to fill your days, head over to MLive.com slash podcasts. We'll see you next week. All right, from our